This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Buck is a dear friend of mine, and it is an honor to be filling in here on this uh, national radio show. I am the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement, now in over 1,400 college and high school campuses across the country. And now also, I am the host of The Charlie Kirk Show, which you can find on Apple Podcasts. You can go to Apple Podcasts, type in The Charlie Kirk Show, hit subscribe, give it five stars. Usually podcasts are more to the left, but we are trending quickly, and we are outpacing what some of the haters ever would have possibly imagined. So if you want to support a conservative fighting the culture war on college campuses on podcasts, you can go to Apple Podcasts and type in The Charlie Kirk Show. Busy news day today. Of course, the stock market tumbled. You know, I get such a kick out of this in some ways because the stock market was only as high as it was because of the success of Donald Trump. It was only as high as it was because of the tax cuts and the deregulation. Do you remember back during the campaign and back during pre-inauguration and right near um, Donald Trump's election? If President Trump becomes if Trump becomes president of the United States, he's going to crash the economy. The stock market is going to tumble. And of course, we've seen the exact opposite. We've seen record high after record high, 99 record highs. We've seen 3.2% economic growth. We have seen the strongest economy in American history. Think about that. The best economy in American history. Lowest ever black unemployment. Lowest ever Latino unemployment, lowest ever Asian American unemployment, lowest ever disabled unemployment, more people working today in our economy than ever before. Now, mind you, typically America goes as the world goes. And this is not necessarily any exception, but usually when America is growing, the rest of the world is able to also parallel or harmonize with that kind of growth. The rest of the world is in near recession, if not slow growth at best. And so the president is thinking so strategically right now. Now, mind you, with almost every other leader that I have come across on the left, the intentions, I think, are a little murky. I think Joe Biden's intentions are, how do I get as rich as I possibly can as quickly as I possibly can? That's why he's been on every side of every issue. Immigration, he once wanted to build the wall. Now he wants to give health care to every person that ever crosses into our country. What are, the, what are the motivations of Bernie Sanders? He just wants power. I call him breadline Bernie Sanders or Bolshevik Bernie Sanders. What do you think, Mr. Producer? Breadline, Bolshevik, Bernie Sanders? I love them both, man. I, I, think, I think they both work. And so, but with President Trump, not for a second, not for a minute, do I ever doubt his intentions you know i kind of laugh because people say oh well his intentions he just wants to get rich off this whole deal if he wanted to get rich he picked the wrong endeavor to engage in his net worth has gone down 
He has been delisted by basically every major advertising agency. So definitely this was not a good get-rich-quick scheme to run for the presidency. And so when I look at what he's doing with China, and this is, a, this is the reason why the stock market has fallen. So you have to realize the stock market was only as high as it was because of pro-growth policies that the president implemented. And now the president is now zeroing in on America's greatest enemy, as the great Rush Limbaugh calls them, the Chai Coms, the Chinese communists. They are without a doubt the greatest threat to world freedom over the next 100, 150 years. They have over a billion people. They have massive control over their population. They're building islands in the South China Sea. They have the largest standing army in the world. They routinely and daily hack our cyber grid. They steal our intellectual property at will. Just so you realize, in order to even do business in China, you have to engage in a form of a joint partnership with the Chinese communist government and hand over all of your intellectual property. So to have the right, quote unquote, right to be able to engage with China in commerce, you have to hand over, you have to hand over all the stacks of your paper that you spent years getting patented, all the intellectual property that you did everything you possibly could, your blood, your sweat, your tears, you have to hand it over to the Chinese government. And so many times, in fact, it has become the rule, not the exception. China will take that intellectual property and produce your good or your product quicker than you could and sell it back in the United States in a counterfeit market or through one of their other companies. China is growing at an alarming pace. Their GDP is now within striking range of the United States. And yet, the president has taken a very courageous tone against China. Here's the way I interpret it. China is our greatest enemy. We can either fight them through an economic skirmish right now, or within the next hundred years, we could have, unfortunately, in my own observation, a brutal military conflict in the next hundred years. God forbid. So war is a horrendous thing and should be avoided at all costs. But I get the media says, oh, this is going to start a trade war. This is going to start a trade war. Hold on a second. We have been at a trade war with China for the last 50 years, and there's only been one side fighting, and that's the Chinese. They've been the ones decimating the U.S. steel industry. They've been the ones targeting U.S. manufacturing. We have signed trade deal after trade deal that benefited them more than us every single time. People say, oh, we've had free trade. We have not had free trade with China. Handing over your intellectual property, not being able to sell our goods or products or services, that's not free trade. It's free trade for them in our country. It's not free trade for us in their country. And so the president is rebalancing things. China has actually been in a recession in the last year because of the 10% tariffs that the United States has put on China. And so today, China strikes back with some tariff hikes, which of course has now put the stock market in a little bit of uncertainty. Let's cut to audio soundbite number four. This is the Chinese foreign minister commenting on this. Raising tariffs will not solve any problems. China will never surrender to external pressure. We have the determination and the ability to safeguard our legitimate rights and interests. Well, there you go. I mean, that's the Chinese foreign, in, uh, foreign minister who says, quote, we will not surrender. We'll never surrender to external pressure. pressure. We'll see about that. Never surrender to external pressure. China has a couple 
really big problems. Number one, they don't have access to energy the way the United States does. They don't have a Permian Basin. They don't have a Marcellus Shale. They don't have the kind of natural resources, coal, oil, natural gas that we have. So they are very dependent on the rest of the world to fuel their economy. The other problem that they have is they have a citizenry that at any time could recreate the Tiananmen Square. At any time, they could have massive civil unrest. And of course, our tech companies do a highly unethical assistance of actually helping China suppress freedom of thought, to help China suppress any sort of political conversation in their country. And if we're honest with ourselves, China will take the opportunity in the next 50 years to strike against the United States in some form of fashion that will rebalance the scales against us in some fundamentally groundswell way. They've been doing this economically to us for years. And you ask me, now is the time to break the back of the country that has been breaking our back for 40 years. How many millions of jobs were shipped overseas to China so that we could fund their military? Do you know that China is buying up ports of entry, natural mineral rights, gold and diamonds, all across Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, across South America? They have a 100-year plan to build a worldwide empire. Let's go to audio soundbite number three, which is Larry Kudlow, who is head of the National Economic Council for the White House on China. The fundamental things, we, I mean, we've said this many times, um, intellectual property theft has to be fixed. Uh, forced technology transfer and ownership of American companies has to be fixed. Uh, cyber interventions have to be fixed. Some of the Chinese officials have said, both in Beijing and here with the Mr. Liu He, that this is, the agreement was too unbalanced, okay, and had to be, uh, no, the relationship has been too unbalanced. And because of these problems of unfair and sometimes uh, uh, unlawful trading practices, we have to have a very strong agreement to correct, to right these wrongs before we will be satisfied. All right. What I love most about this is if you understand Larry Kudlow's background, I'm a huge fan of Larry Kudlow. He is a free market economist. I'm a free market guy. I believe that the free enterprise system is the most moral, proven, and effective economic system ever discovered. But fundamental in trade and fundamental in being able to have commerce is the assuredness the person you're trading with is not stealing your good or product or service or violating the terms of engagement. Do you know that China is still classified as a developing nation by the World Trade Organization? Now, why does that matter? So let me reiterate that. China, the world's second largest economy with a billion people, and with about a $12 trillion GDP, more or less, $12 trillion GDP, is still classified as a developing country. A developing country. That means they don't have to be held to the same standards of environmental protections, or workplace protections, they actually want to continually be labeled as a developing nation. And what Trump is doing here is generationally important. Either we fight them now economically, and we say to ourselves, you know what, maybe we can make textiles in this country again. Maybe we have to pay $32 for jeans instead of $24 for jeans. You know what, maybe we can make iPhones again in this country. Maybe it might cost $700 for an iPhone instead of $550 for an iPhone. I will happily buy my textiles, my clothing, my iPhones, my technology for a little bit more money 
if it means that we will not be funding the rise of an empire that hates our country, a rise of an empire that suppresses its citizens. And where is the media, by the way? Eerily silent, it seems, on the persecution of Muslims in China. Do you know that tens of millions of Muslims in China are being held in pseudo-concentration camps? They are not a democracy, by the way. President Xi has basically elected himself emperor for life. They are making gradual yet strategic steps to cement his power to be able to make him, quote-unquote, king of the Asian rim, Pacific rim first and foremost, and eventually of the world. They must be checked. We are at a place right now where we have a perfect combination to use the record economic growth that we are enjoying thanks to the Trump tax cut, thanks to the deregulation, the renewed American spirit, and the energy independence that all President Trump has delivered through massive deregulation, through allowing us to use our natural resources, 3.2% GDP growth, lowest ever black, Asian, and Latino unemployment. I repeat it because repetition is the soul of memory. We have an opportunity since we're experiencing economic growth to not have a massive cost to holding them accountable, to reconfiguring these trade deals and reconfiguring them and putting China in their place. You can either fight them on the economic terrain now or, God forbid, we'll have to fight them in the military terrain tomorrow. Let's go to audio soundbite nine, which is President Trump talking about tariffs. He said this today. China has been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. I'm not just talking about during the Obama administration. Uh, you can go back long before that. And it's been taking out 400, 500, 600 billion dollars a year out of the United States. And we can't let that happen. Uh, we're in a very strong position. Our economy has been very powerful. Theirs has not been. We're taking in right now hundreds of billions of dollars. We're taking in billions of dollars of tariffs. We've never taken in 10 cents until I got elected. Now we're taking in billions and billions. Now, it went up as of Friday very substantially. It's 25 percent or 200 billion. So now the total is 25 percent on 250 billion dollars. In addition to that, we have another $325 billion that we can do if we decide to do it. Do you know what I love most about this president? He picks fights that he knows are going to be generationally important, that he knows he will receive backlash from the media on. He picks fights that he knows are going to get him some grief by the wise men of Washington, but he knows are fundamental for this country. Trade deals, immigration, just to name a couple. And of course, China. He does not have to do this. Obama kicked the can down the road with China. Clinton helped configure some of these deals. George W. Bush never challenged China. But it is President Trump who is now using the economic growth and enjoying this economic growth as leverage against China, as leverage against them as they try to strike back. And I just kind of find this humorous. You know, China. China now slaps on all these tariffs. They could not slap on enough tariffs to make us feel it the way that we can make it feel against them. So you have to understand, the United States says we're going to slip on to, slap on $200 billion in tariffs. And then China says, well, we're going to slap on $60 billion. They can't slap on $200 billion. They know that, first of all, there's not enough stuff that they're importing of the United States into their own country. Secondly, if they were to slap on $200 billion, we would just retaliate in kind. 
You're trying to tell me that we as a country don't have the wherewithal, the creativity, and the entrepreneurial capacity not to make every single thing that they make in, our, in their country and that we import into our country? We've just done it just for the sake of having lower-cost goods. And there was a window of opportunity where that allowed us a lot of consumers to have access to lower-cost goods. I'm not, I'm not discounting that as a free market guy. But it's gone to a point now where they have stolen our intellectual property, they are hacking our cyber grid, which is an act of war, for so long that is putting our national sovereignty in jeopardy. So President Trump, keep the pressure on. Middle America is behind you. Our country is behind you. And future generations will thank you for taking a courageous stand against America's greatest enemy, China. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the Buck Sexton Radio Show. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. A- am I the only person that actually enjoyed the Game of Thrones episode last night? I mean, I'm reading all my Game of Thrones blogs. I love Game of Thrones. If, you, if you're listening to this and you're, you haven't yet seen Game of Thrones or if you're tired of listening to it, I, I have to just say it's one of the most beautifully depicted pieces of television I've ever seen. Breaking Bad actually might be close. I have to say Breaking Bad actually might be a close second. But I, I've been reading all my blogs, all my Game of Thrones blogs, and it's all negative. Oh, no character arc, no no finality to all this. I absolutely loved last night's episode. Everything about it. Everything about it. From, from the dilemma that Daenerys Targaryen had when she was on the dragon to either burn the city to the ground or accept the surrender of the Lannisters. And of course, everyone says online, oh, it's so horrible. Oh, you know, she's become this evil, terrible person. And I'm not, I'm not going to get into, you know, actually what she did or talk about or defend it. But there is a side to it where well, there's a brutal reality to war that doesn't always get to be shown on television. That actually you saw a person that descended from the once heroine of the series into a pseudo-villain of the series, that you started the episode cheering her on and saying, yes, burn down the Iron Fleet. Yes, burn down the, the bridge. Burn it all down. And all of a sudden you're saying, oh no, don't burn it down. Stop it. Stop it. Isn't that kind of a great lesson of the use of force and getting a snapshot into the actual picture of a leader and the kind of dilemmas within that and actually kind of the entire episode, I thought, was an allegory to uh, 1945 Dresden in some ways. Anyway, I love the episode. I love Game of Thrones. I've been reading all my blogs. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. I'm the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating, empowering, and organizing students around the values of free markets and limited government. We're diving into China a little bit earlier. But understand, this is President Trump having to fix a problem that previous administrations did not address. 
This is President Trump now courageously having to take a political hit for something that other administrations refused to address whatsoever. It would be very easy right now. Think about it. President Trump does not have to be picking this fight right now, but he knows it's the right thing for the country, and it is the right thing for the country. He knows that he doesn't have to address China in the short term. He could easily go to his eight years, that's right, because I believe he's going to get reelected, and not have to mention China at all, despite him even running on it, because even though he ran on it, most politicians don't actually do what they say they're going to do. President Trump is the first president in American history to be attacked for doing what he said he's going to do. From his first announcement, when he went down the escalator nearly four years ago, he promised to be tough on China. He promised to hold them accountable. He promised to renegotiate our broken backwards trade deals. And that's exactly what he's doing now. But it would be really easy for him to kind of scoot it away. Now, the China issue, uh, the economy is great. Mueller report vindicates me. Do I really need to now pick a fight that will assuredly make the stock market be more volatile and make more bad articles about me and possibly put me in jeopardy in some of the states that love me most? Instead, he does what is correct and then worries about the political calculation of it. Every other president is the exact opposite. They do the politically correct, the political calculation. Then they might say, well, is this the correct thing to do? And so the president is wired, he is postured in a position where his instincts tell him to solve problems. Seeing being from the business world, being from a community where you have to actually solve things that are broken, you immediately always process information in a way where you look at something that needs fixing or you need something that needs recalibrating. And instead of saying, well, what's, what is city hall going to like what are what are the rest of the partners instead you're like well let's fix it and then we can actually worry about how to explain it not actually have any popular instead i want to do what is correct and what is right that is so transformational and so different in the american political scene i'm also struck recently by i i don't know what it is about elon omar and rashida talib do they have to use these they have to continue to make these extreme comments Time and time again, Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar, it just seems that they can't resist the urge to say things that are so outrageous that if a Republican dared said these things, if Trump, if any conservative said anything close to this, there would be such unbelievable outrage, their careers would be over. Producer Mike, let's go to audio soundbite number one. There's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews. When I think about uh, one state, I think about the fact that why couldn't we do it in a better way? I mean, I want to... There's a kind of calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust quote. I kind of gasp and I kind of sigh because I I don't know how you could process a piece of history and 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 say it like that. Can we let's play that audio soundbite one more time just for just for reinforcement. This is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib remarks on the Holocaust. 
There's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews. When I think about uh, one state, I think about the fact that why couldn't we do it in a better way? Well, and so first of all, she she has so much incorrect, and she always gets labeled as a Palestinian American. Well, why can't she just be an American? Can we unhyphenate America? I mean, wh- why Palestinian American, Chinese American? What makes America so unique? What is in our cultural identity is you don't have to be hyphenated based on your place of origin. Do we still call people Irish Americans because their ancestors fled the potato famine in the 1800s? We call people Americans once you embrace this idea, the Latin phrase that is part of the American trinity that is on our presidential seal, e pluribus unum, out of many one. And so Rashida Tlaib, her and Alan Omar, I think are in some sort of competition of who can insult the Jewish people more and who can give the most outrageous comment without having to resign. I have to say Alan Omar is actually in first place. Rashida Tlaib's in a close second. I think Alan Omar saying that Jews have dual loyalty to both Israel and the United States. I think Alan Omar saying, describing 9-11 as, quote, some people that did something. I think she's probably in first place. But Rashida Tlaib saying, there's kind of a calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust. Six million Jews are slaughtered and killed. Do you know that there are less Jews in, in the world today than there were right before the Holocaust? Think about that statistic. There are less Jews today than there were right before the Holocaust. This was the near extinction of an entire people. And the words that come to her, she says, there's kind of a calming feeling I always tell folks. This is something that she recounts that she commonly has, that she thinks calmly when she thinks of the Holocaust. And so Rashida Tlaib and Alan Omar in this very backwards competition of who can insult Jewish and Jewish ancestry more also intentionally demagogue the Israeli issue. Palestine as it were was British occupation of the Middle East. But if you actually go back to the original geographic disbursement of that region. It was originally called Judea and Samaria, which is actually where the word Jews come from. It comes from Judea. And the misrepresentation of the Zionist journey and of the Middle East is horrifying. Israel was founded as an act of resilience in face to the greatest attempt at extinction against a religious people in the history of the world. Let me, re- let, me, let me reiterate that. The Holocaust was the greatest attempt of extinction against a religious people in the history of the world. And Israel was a Zionist movement that started by Herzl in the late 1800s. Jews were already beginning their pilgrimage back to the Holy Land in the late 1800s and early 1900s, well before the Holocaust. But after the Holocaust... Jews all across the world realized and agreed upon that the creation of a Jewish state in the true home of the Jews, which of course incorporates the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, was needed and necessary, which also was a tool to fight against anti-Semitism, 
was the unification of the Jewish people within a Jewish state. And all of a sudden, all this gets demagogued into saying all of that is somehow Palestinian land, which of course it isn't. It has been the Jews going back for almost 4,000 years, and the more excavation, and the more archaeological discovery, and the more discovery that we have in that region and in the city in the holy city of jerusalem in the city of david actually proves to the authenticity that it is indeed the jewish land but that, that i have to understand there's such a double standard here because if you're in israel and actually in the state of israel jews muslims and christians are allowed to practice their religion as they see fit whether it be go to alaska mosque or whether it goes to the western wall you want to go to the via della rosa no matter, or you want to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, all three monotheistic Abrahamic religions are allowed to peacefully practice their religion in the state of Israel. All three religions have representation in the Knesset. All three religions have representation on the Israeli Supreme Court. And they talk about how Palestinians are the ones that are not allowed somehow into Israel. First of all, Palestinians are allowed to visit Israel, but Jews are not allowed into the Palestinian Authority. I'll never forget when I was driving south from Jerusalem to Hebron. Hebron, of course, is where the Hall of the Patriarchs is, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried along with their wives. Hebron, of course, is the place that Abraham actually bought that land thousands and thousands of years ago. It's talked about in the Torah, talked about in the Bible. I'll never forget, there's a sign I want to visualize, I want to try to articulate the best I can, with an arrow going straight, and then two arrows going to the right and to the left. Kind of curved arrows going out of the arrow going straight. And there's, it's, all, it's, all in, it's all in Hebrew and in Arabic. It's in both languages, not in English. And I ask my tour guide, my friend Matan, I say, what does this mean? And he says, well, we have to keep going straight because if we go right, we'll get killed. And if we go left, we'll get killed. And I look at him, I say, what do you mean we'll, we'll be killed? He says, if a Jew drives down that street another hundred yards and takes a turn, you'll be killed by all the people in the Palestinian Authority. That's a pretty unbelievable hatred of the Jews. As Lee Zeldin said, and many other people said, you actually look at the Hamas charter, you actually look at what Hamas was founded upon, which is the occupying party over Gaza. It is a deliberate concentration, a deliberate focus on the abolition of the Jewish people. Let's go to audio soundbite number two. It's dangerous when you and we do the research and you study the you know, Hamas charter where mm -hmm. they they actually talk about murdering every Jew and saying that jihad is an obligation. And just last week in a Philadelphia uh, Islamic community center, the Muslim American Society with ties, one of their founders is actually a co was the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so, Congressman Lee Zeldin articulates the best Hamas, which now occupies Gaza. Israel should never have gotten out of Gaza the way they did. 10,000 Jews are forced out of their homes. Actually, is focused on the complete destruction of the Jewish state and the Jewish people. It is amazing to me the focus on Israel, the focus on the Jewish people throughout time. I'm going to comment on that in just a little bit. So hang on tight. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton radio show. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton, the Buck Sexton radio show. 
I'm the founder of Turning Point USA, tpusa.com. You can follow me on Twitter at charliekirk11. It just always fascinates me the hatred for the state of Israel, the nation state that is, has democratic elections. You know, I, I ask people, they, they, a lot of college students, they say, well, I just can't stand Israel. It's this horrible place. And I ask them, I say, what's the only country in the Middle East with a gay pride parade? And they kind of think around. Well, I say, well, they're not having a gay pride parade in Saudi Arabia anytime soon. You get killed for that. They're not having a gay pride parade anywhere else in the Middle East. They're not having a gay pride parade in Iran. And they say, well, uh, I say, yeah, it's actually Israel. I say, what's the only country in the Middle East where all three religions are allowed access to their holy sites? And they pause. So, yeah, that's actually Israel, too. What's the only country in the Middle East that has free enterprise, impartial courts, and democratic elections? And they pause and they say, well, I don't know, is Israel? So, yeah, that's right. It's Israel. Israel is a little America in the Middle East in a very complex, very difficult situation, surrounded by nothing but enemies, a sliver of a country with 8 million people and half the world's Jews, half the world's Jews live in Israel. There has been only one point of commonality in Israel's history. The more land that Israel gives up, the more territory that it surrenders, the more that it, that it cedes, the further away from peace we have become. Sinai Desert is probably the only example of actually giving up land where peace has worked, and that's between Israel and Egypt, relative peace. The Israel gave up land to Gaza, to the Palestinian Authority, in 2005. Factories, rolling hills, functioning work areas, energy production, 10,000 Jews were taken out of their settlements. And what, what, what was that in return? In return, Hamas took over. Hamas an internationally recognized terrorist organization that receives hundreds of millions of dollars every single year from the international community to not build schools, to not build hospitals, instead build terror tunnels into Israel to kill and to murder. And so it's always amazing to me when I'm on college campuses, some of the most hatred and the most venom is focused on Israel. A small country in the Middle East that respects human rights with only 8 million people the focus is not on countries that have actually done harm to marginalized groups, have actually done harm to our country, but instead it's the focus on the sliver of prosperity and this beacon of freedom in the Middle East that continues to fight for the values of Western civilization that we hold so near and dear. And so the only conclusion that I could possibly make, kind of the marginalization of all of this, is that this is anti-Semitism. Some people push back against that and they say, oh, Charlie, that, that can't possibly be. That's not, you know, it's not. It's anti-Zionism. You can be against Israel, but, you know, again, without being against Jews. Despite Israel having half of the world's Jews in it and Israel being fundamental to the Jewish faith and tradition and Israel being integral to the Torah, despite all of that, there's a reason why they're hated so much. And it's more than just 
what they would say is a messy founding, which I don't agree with. The Balfour Declaration was very simple and very clear. It's because anti-Semitism is one of the great sins of humanity, which is even older than the Roman Empire. If you have not yet been to Israel, I highly recommend it. Israel is one of the most amazing formative trips that I've ever been on. Learned so much by going there. And in the next hour here, we're going to be talking more about Elan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, all things daily news cycle. I'm also going to tell you one liberal that I agree with. This is Charlie Kirk, founder of Turning Point USA, filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton radio show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton founder of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest conservative student organization fighting for free markets, limited government, and American exceptionalism on college and high school campuses all across the country. Reading this article that I just find to be so interesting, it is a Politico article. Politico is interesting. I, they tend to be more to the left, but they have some, they have some good reporters there and so the the headline is the epitome of privilege booker supporters seethe over Buttigieg mania the sub the kind of the subline is two presidential contenders boast some of the same credentials so why is mayor pete getting all the attention and the article goes on it's it's fairly well written about how there's actually a lot in common as far as the resume and the credentials of Cory Booker and Pete Buttigieg. That they were both small they were both mayors of once great American cities, Newark and South Bend, that they both went to similar uh, high profile northeastern schools, so on and so forth. And then it goes here, and I just this is so typical of the left. If you understand the if you understand how the left operates, it becomes so easy to predict them. And I predicted this a couple weeks ago. I said, well, just wait, Pete Buttigieg. You will be attacked for being a white male. Now, he's not a straight white male, so he does have that. So I don't know how much privilege there is in that. But anyway, so by a guy named Antoine Seawright, I want to make sure I said his name right, a South Carolina-based strategist, he said the following. What I hear from people is that they see the epitome of privilege. Quote in the Politico article, Other Democrats see Buttigieg's rise as a reflection of entrenched racial and gender biases. That the Buttigieg bump would be impossible if he wasn't a white man. This is so... It's just divisive, first of all, and I'm going to debunk it. Just always viewing things through a lens of gender and racial lines, gender and racial lines. It goes against the core tenets of the American trinity of e pluribus unum, out of many one. Instead, the left focuses on divide and conquer. But let's let's play this out. If the Democrat primary and if politics in general were so rooted against people of color or women, 
Why is it that the two last nominees of the Democrat Party was a woman and a person of color? It was Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Maybe Pete Buttigieg is having a great rise right now in comparison to Spartacus because he's a much better communicator and a much has a lot more charisma and authenticity than the fake senator from New Jersey who had one of the most cringe cringe-worthy moments I've ever seen in politics. And and so you see these people quoted who are saying the only reason that Cory Booker is not doing well in the polls is because of white privilege. It's because of white privilege. If, he, if Booker was a white guy, he would get all the attention. He would get all the attention. It's all, all this, it's, and again, it's so concerning that immediately, instead of looking introspectively, instead of saying, hmm, maybe Booker needs a message, maybe Booker needs to work on his public speaking ability, maybe he comes across as really rehearsed and insincere, and I think he comes across as so staged. When I look at Cory Booker, I can't help but think as if he's been preparing for this his whole life, and he just doesn't seem as if there's a real connection there. Now, Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, I, I, I did a whole thing on him on my podcast last week, and you can download my podcast, The Charlie Kirk Show, on Apple Podcasts, press subscribe, give it five stars, where he's essentially right out of central casting, but he's so good at connecting to people. And he's he also they're juxtaposing it with Julian Castro, who is also a San Antonio mayor. And they're saying Julian Castro is a person of color and Cory Booker is a person of color. And all of a sudden, Pete Buttigieg does so well just because he's white, because they're white privilege. Well, again, how on earth did Barack Obama win the primary in 2008 and 2016 and win the presidency twice if there was all this white privilege, white male privilege? How did Hillary Clinton win the primary against a white man, Bernie Sanders, if, all, if there was all this white privilege? But I do think it does say something. And this kind of goes back to one of my original predictions, which is this field feels incomplete, that this field feels as if there's still people that have yet to enter, that there's people that have yet to disrupt it. I think that you're going to see, I think the AOC kind of chapter of American politics, you see, Mr. Producer, I'm being very careful with how I describe it, the chapter of AOC, let's just call it her chapter in American political history has been very instructive that you can be constantly wrong but never in doubt and garner a huge amount of attention around ideas that are inherently debunked that are that are debunked and I should say are inherently dangerous and divisive to America but so you have AOC I think someone similar to her is going to come on to the primary scene. I think someone similar to her that can play intersectional leftist politics, that can talk about the Bernie Sanders socialism, I think that person has yet to catch the fire of day. And we are so early. We are so in the beginning stages of all things Democrat politics. Being able to even make a prediction this early, I believe, is is unfounded. And so is Pete? Is it Pete Buttigieg white privilege that makes him the most for the front runner as the candidacy? Of course not. Of course not. It's that he has a much better story and he's much he's much better able to connect than both of them. 
And by the way, since when is there... I thought this is what's so twisted about this entire idea that somehow Buttigieg has privilege and Booker doesn't. I thought there is no privilege in being gay. I thought that's lower on the privilege totem pole. So isn't it the opposite? Isn't that he has to overcome privilege or they have to handicap it in some way? And it's it's just it's so fascinating to see time and time again the left now turn against their own and this civil war is only going to get deeper and deeper i read another i i I try to read and i try to catch up a lot on kind of understanding the left and something really struck me the other day where i was reading saul linsky's rules for radicals and for those of you that not read saul linsky's rules for radicals it is one of the most instructive books on how the american left operates and how the American left thinks through their strategies. Saul Linsky was a Chicago-based community organizer that Barack Obama had great affection for, that Barack Obama learned under. Hillary Clinton wrote her senior thesis at Wellesley College about Saul Linsky. Saul Linsky is the basis of the modern American left. But President Trump actually uses one of their rules, Solinsky's rule for radicals number four. Rule number four says, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Well, when did Trump do that recently? Of course, when Trump threatened to send illegals to sanctuary cities and the left totally and completely caved. We've had it here for years. Robert Francis O'Rourke, he calls himself Beto. Robert Francis O'Rourke, tear down the walls in El Paso. Tear them down. And then as soon as Trump says, well, then we're going to send all the illegals who will pass it. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Uh, they're not so fast here. Nancy Pelosi says, all people living in this country are dreamers. President Trump says, well, we're going to send all the illegals to San Francisco. Hold on a minute. Now our schools are overrun. Homelessness in the streets. And I do have to make a side point. I was in San Francisco last week. The homeless epidemic is in no way being overblown in San Francisco. It was previously one of my favorite cities to visit in America. It is overrun overrun by vagrancy, by drug usage. I saw public defecation. It looks as if it's a third world country in San Francisco. Do you know there are more homeless people in San Francisco than children enrolled in public school? And so what does Trump do is he uses their own rules against them. Solinsky rule number four, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Now, of course, Solinsky called conservatives the enemy. I wouldn't go that far, but make the opposition, make the other side live up to its own book of rules, which is the brilliance in President Trump. Because now all of a sudden you had to see all these sanctuary city governors, sanctuary city mayors live up to their own book of rules. The sanctuary city mayor of Philadelphia. Well, we don't have room for all these, you know, undocumented illegal immigrants. We don't have rule for all of them. Nancy Pelosi, we don't we don't have room for them. And of course, in San Francisco, did you know that they've spent seventy million dollars this fiscal year cleaning up human waste and drug paraphernalia off the streets? Seventy million dollars. There are more and I said there are more homeless people and drug user, users in San Francisco. Public needle program than high school graduates. This is the Democrat vision for America. And it's it's hard to say, well, it's hard to blame Republicans for that, isn't it? I can't, re- I, I mean, I, I can find out when the last Republican mayor of San Francisco was. I guarantee it wasn't anytime soon. 
the last Republican governor of California was hardly, hardly Republican. I believe it was Governor Schwarzenegger. I can get fact-checked on that. He was hardly a conservative, I should say. It's really hard to blame Republicans for California having the most homeless people, one of the worst pension fi- uh, financial situations, one of the one of the most unpredictable states as far as financial certainty. Time and time, you can go through all the list of all the reasons why California is such sad, sad shape. It's really hard to blame Republicans for all of that. And President Trump routinely uses the rules of the left against them. And and so then I look at Kamala Harris, I look at Cory Booker, and I look at Pete Buttigieg. I've been watching them so carefully, all of them, all these Democrats running for president. And in favorite, I, Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff says today, well, I don't know if we can survive another four years of the Trump presidency. I don't know if we can survive another four years. Wait a second. You don't know if you can survive the world being more peaceful today than ever has been? You don't know if you can survive the lowest ever black unemployment rate, the lowest ever Latino unemployment rate, the lowest ever Asian American unemployment rate? You don't know if you can survive 3.2% GDP growth? You don't know if you can survive that? They have become so hypnotized by their own talking points. They have no ability and no capacity to be even able to make a point that has any sort of factual basis. Instead, their hatred of Donald Trump is much more than their hate, their love of America. Their hatred of Donald Trump supersedes their love of America. Time and time again, it seems as if they're cheering for the downfall of our country. Time and time again, it seems as if they are hoping that we go into a recession. Bill Maher actually went as far to say that. And... I wish we were a country where both political parties equally were wishing, praying for the prosperity and peace for our country. But an entire political party which much more would much rather have power more than prosperity for the middle parts of our country, the backbone and the hardworking taxpayers that allow this country to be the greatest country in the history of the world. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton. We will be right back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton is an American hero, American patriot. It's an honor to be filling in. I'm the founder of Turning Point USA and host of the Charlie Kirk Show. You can be found on Apple Podcasts. Type in on Apple Podcasts, Charlie Kirk Show. Press that subscribe button. Charlie Kirk Show. Press that subscribe button. Helps us out tremendously helps us fight the left on their terrain. Could you imagine on that beautiful day, one of the greatest days of my life, actually might have been the greatest day of my life, when Donald Trump won the presidency. I'll never forget where I was. I was in Trump Tower with Donald Trump Jr. I was at the Hilton celebrating. Could you imagine Trump wins the presidency? The Electoral College meets, and all of a sudden, the Electoral College, remember, this is a fear, because we did have some electors defecting. Could you imagine if the electors set up? Hold on a minute. We know better than this. The will of the people. Screw that. We're going to elect Hillary Clinton. I do have to give our system credit. I do have to give our Constitution credit. I do have to give our entire society credit for despite 
the discontent, despite the hatred, despite the coup d'etat attempted within the FBI, Trump is still president to this day, and boy, is he a successful one. But I want you to imagine that scenario that Hillary became president, that Hillary Clinton becomes president. What would the tone of the country be? That tone is exactly what is happening right now in the UK, happening right now in Britain. Right now, my good friend and ally in the fight for freedom, Nigel Farage, is surging to the front of all parliamentary elections coming up. The election is coming up on May 23rd, and he found it. Now, the way it works in Britain is much different than the United States. You know, we have the Republican Party, the Democrat Party. We raise hundreds of millions, billions of dollars for congressional and Senate races, state elections, governor races. It's very structured, very different in Europe, very different. You can start a party in weeks, in days. And so Nigel Farage did just that. After the misfiring of being able to execute on Brexit, Nigel Farage said, Screw all of you. I am going to start a party that will challenge all of you because you saw the Tories and the Labour and the quote unquote conservative party, the conservative party, which is anything but conservative. The conservative party is anything but conservative in the United Kingdom. Fail to execute on the will of the people of the UK. It would be no different than Donald Trump winning the Electoral College. And all of a sudden, them electing Hillary Clinton, her being sworn in. That is the defiance of the will of the people that is going on. Mind you, it was three years ago almost that Brexit was voted upon. Right now, polls show the Brexit party will easily win the next European Parliament polls. Now, again, the polls have been wrong before. That would edge ahead of Theresa May's conservative party and put Nigel Farage as the potential prime minister of the United Kingdom. Nigel is a dear friend. He has spoke at many of our Turning Point USA conferences. This is more than just a flash in the pan. There was a poll that just came out a couple days ago that showed just his three-month-old Brexit party. This party's only three months old. I visited. I visited the United Kingdom in March. I think it was March or April to visit our Turning Point UK chapter over there. And the Brexit party was much of nothing. The Brexit party could end up getting anywhere between 34 and 40%, which would absolutely seismically change the terrain of the UK politics. And this is a beautiful thing. Because if you ignore the populist base, if you ignore the will of the people, there will be a price to pay. There will be a price to pay. And God bless Nigel Farage for continuing the will of the people. I hope that he'll continue to succeed as you head into the May 23rd election. This is Charlie Kirk, founder of Turning Point USA and host of The Charlie Kirk Show. can be found on Apple Podcasts, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. We'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Hello, everybody. Charlie Kirk here, founder of Turning Point USA, tpusa.com, the nation's largest conservative student movement dedicated to the values of free markets, limited government, and American exceptionalism. I'm also host of The Charlie Kirk Show on Apple Podcasts. You can 
hit subscribe. Type in Charlie Kirk Show to Apple Podcasts. Hit subscribe. Five-star rating helps us out. And you hear more about what I have to say on the current issues. We have a weekly show. We have a weekly show. We might be doing uh, even more episodes soon. So I, I hit China earlier. I kind of hit on the China issue, and I wanna, I wanna kind of hit on an issue I don't talk as much about as I probably should. It's an issue that I care deeply about. It's one that I think is integral to the integrity of our country, the financial integrity of our country, but also the fabric of our country of who we are. And it's something I think that President Trump has tried a great deal to do something about, but he truly does need congressional assistance to address. And this is something that even despite a booming economy and despite the world being peaceful is one of our greatest liabilities. And that is our national debt and our fiscal insolvency. The federal government spent $2.5 trillion in the first seven months of fiscal year 2019, setting an all-time record for real federal spending in the first seven years of a fiscal year. It's all according to data published by monthly treasury statements. We are borrowing an unsustainable amount of money. So I do want to kind of define some terms here. There is a difference between the national debt and our national deficit. These two terms get conflated so frequently. A deficit is your annual amount of money that you borrow every single year. So our deficit is $530 billion a year. Our debt, that means the total cumulative amount of money that we have borrowed in the history of our country, is well over $22, 23000000000000 trillion. Producer Mike can get me the exact number for that. I, don't, I want to be very precise when I talk about this. Now, this does not count unfunded liabilities. This does not count promises that we've made in the future. I actually got my start in politics as making this the biggest and most passionate issue that I care about. A country cannot function if you have debt levels that rise double or triple of your entire worth. Japan was is one of the great stories of how a national debt can hinder and prevent prosperity. As many others have said before, and Thomas Jefferson said, debt is the slavery of the free. Japan was one of the richest countries in the 1980s. In fact, there was a great fear that Japan would take over America. For those of you that might remember, they bought Rockefeller Plaza in New York. There was a time when the Imperial Palace in Japan around Tokyo was the richest, was the most valuable piece of real estate in the world, I should say. The most valuable piece of real estate in the world. Then Japan kind of had its teeth kicked in, had a mini recession, and they made some very, very, very regrettable mistakes. They started borrowing insurmountable amounts of money. Japan actually has one of the worst debt-to-GDP ratios in the world now. Their debt-to-GDP ratio is almost 347% to debt-to-GDP ratio. Ours is about one-to-one, so about 100%. So we about owe as much money as we are worth. I have warned against this coming fiscal calamity for years. In fact, I gave a speech in the summer of 2000. And 11, in the summer of 2011, when our national debt was $13 trillion. And now our national debt is 
$2 trillion and moving and counting and growing every year. Now, the president has done a great job of submitting budgets to Congress that would cut spending and curb the amount of reckless borrowing going on. Our deficit just for the first seven months of a fiscal year was $530 billion, which means we're probably on pace to borrow about $800 billion. Borrow $800 billion. That means we are borrowing the equivalent of the entire GDP of an entire European nation. I want you to think about that. We are borrowing the GDP of entire countries every single year. We have such unsustainable amount of fiscal spending. This will put us in severe jeopardy. And so as I kind of open this, I kind of put China on watch. China is our greatest enemy, but many people don't know that China actually owns about a trillion dollars of our debt. And if they start dumping our treasury bonds and if they start actually doing calls on them, it could put severe jeopardy of our financial stability because we cannot fulfill the actual call of our own T-bills, our own treasury bonds, as they're called. And I am bothered by the lack of both political parties addressing our rising national debt. Now, I will say this. Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, they have been so good on this issue, talking about it, presenting budgets, and fighting for the penny plan and fighting to cut spending. However, the reckless war the reckless war in Iraq, $7 trillion in Iraq, for nothing, didn't help. Declaring war in Afghanistan, we're spending $30 billion a month in Afghanistan on absolutely nothing. What are we doing in Afghanistan? I can't answer that question for you at all. The amount that we're paying in Social Security, the amount we're paying in Medicare, Medicaid, is unsustainable for the fiscal health of our country. And it's been both political parties that have metaphorically kicked the can down the road for so long that have put our country in a less likely position to succeed long term. If you want to hinder and hamper the future prosperity of our country, make sure that we borrow money. And I can't with a straight face take the Democrats seriously when they attack Donald Trump on fiscal insolvency because they allowed and they oversaw President Obama doubling the national debt from $10 trillion to $20 trillion, the largest such increase that any president has ever overseen. And my challenge to this Republican Congress, the Senate, and my challenge to this administration is please take the national debt seriously. It's very hard. Now, at least we, yes, we do have economic growth. Economic growth, you can quote unquote, grow your way short term out of debt. There is some validity to that. But boy, it is so dangerous to get addicted to the spigot of borrowed money from other countries. The national debt is one of the greatest threats to American liberty and freedom long term. We have to fix Social Security. We have to make it solvent again. We have to go after the waste, fraud, and abuse within Medicare. We have to make harsh decisions. I should rephrase that. We have to make difficult decisions that might get misinterpreted as being harsh. I correct myself. Towards the size and scope of government. You know the federal government brings in about $4 trillion every single year? What if we only spent $4 trillion? What if we only spent as much money as we brought in we had a balanced budget? There is so much waste There is so much fraud. There is so much abuse within the federal government. Corporate handouts, 
double-dipping pensions, foreign intervention in foreign wars, overspending on missile deploy- missiles and troop deployments, that if we were serious about it, if we said Congress can't get paid until they balance the budget, we could balance the budget. But instead, the politically expedient thing to do is to not do that. The president has commented time and time again on the need to actually balance our budget, and I applaud him for that, President Trump. President Obama couldn't have cared less. He was posting trillion-dollar deficits and didn't think anything about it. But for us as conservatives, we started an entire campaign against Barack Obama for spending too much money. We have to submit budgets that will balance. There is the penny plan. There is fixing the actual balance budget, the actual way that we budget in this country, which is baseline budgeting. Do you know how baseline budgeting works? If I were to say I have a budget of $100 and I say, well, I'm going to cut 1% of my budget. You know, a, a normal person and anyone in real world, real budgeting would say, oh, well, then you'd have $99 left. That's not the way it works in the federal government. If you cut 1% of your budget, if you cut a dollar of your budget, you then have $109 in your budget. Wait, oh, Charlie, $109, how does that happen? Well, because there is a built-in baseline, a built-in period of growth to all budgets every single year. What if we just froze government spending? What if we had a federal hiring freeze? What if we actually had an audit of the federal government that put every dime online in real time? That you could search where your $4 trillion were going. I want to know how much the Tomahawk missile costs, and I want to know how much the taco, ball, taco bar costs at the Department of Commerce. I'll say that again. I want to know how much the Tomahawk missile costs in Syria, and I want to know how much the taco bar costs at the Department of Commerce every single year. I want to know where our money's actually going, because I think transparency is one of the ways to actually demand change with our fiscal insolvency. China is also posting huge debts and deficits. We have an opportunity to balance our budget here. We have a booming economy. We have to make difficult but timely and prescient decisions that will be beneficial for generations to come. Because I'm 25. It's going to be my generation's burden to carry for the next 50 to 100 years. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton, host of The Charlie Kirk Show, Apple Podcast, founder of Turning Point USA. We'll be right back in a minute. Hello, everybody. Charlie Kirk here filling in for the great Buck Sexton. It's been fun so far, and we're having a lot more fun. Lots left to still cover. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed here to, to see the amount of vitriol and hatred that President Trump receives to clean up the messes of the other party. To clean up the messes of the establishment, I should say, both parties have made this mess, especially when it comes to China. President Trump is making a definitive and clear stand to hold the Chinese empire, and that's really what they are, in check. And China is in free fall right now. Their economy is not doing well. Their unemployment is rising, and they cannot sustain this as long as we can. We can, we can wait it out. They are not in a position right now to be able to survive this sort of stalemate. They need us a lot more than we need them. Make no mistake. And I think we're starting to see some seismic change here in the way that 
political parties are able to actually pro- address these ideas. The Republican Party would never have taken on this fight before Trump. The Republican Party would have done next to nothing when it comes to holding China accountable. The Republican Party would not have actually gone up against Xi Jinping with the hacking of the cyber grid and the stealing of the IP and the cyber warfare that has actually been waged on our country. And President Trump has made a courageous stand against China. And I just hope that our Republican Party and enough Democrats will be able to stand with Trump as he as he continues to fight for what is correct and what is right. This last weekend, I was at Liberty University. I was honored and blown away to be given an honorary doctorate by Jerry Falwell Jr. Jerry is a an amazing Christian and American and a conservative in that order, and he's a dear friend, and I just think the world of him. And to get an honorary doctorate was was one of the great honors of my life. I can really say that in one of the great institutions, Liberty University, fighting for Christ and fighting for fighting for the Constitution and fighting for what is right. And Vice President Pence gave the commencement address remarks from uh, at the at the at Williams Stadium right there, and he said something that really I think hit home, where he said. The least tolerant people in the world are those people on the left that preach tolerance. And boy, fighting this culture war, fighting on college campuses all across the country, I can tell you that is absolutely and assuredly the case. That the people that are the ones that are least likely to hear the other side are the people that try to brag about how tolerant they actually are. The left hates the idea that there are other ideas. The left hates the idea that there might have to be debate and discourse, discourse and dialogue and discussion. They hate that there might have to be a marketplace of ideas. The left has feelings, and we as conservatives have facts and logic and history and perspective and rationale and science, things that you're actually able to build a constructive argument around. The left, time and time again, is without principle. They just want power. This is why the left says they hate walls, yet they live in gated communities. The left says they hate guns, yet they walk around with armed guards. The left says they hate private schools, yet they send their kids to those schools. They don't want school choice. Whereas conservatives say, yeah, you have the freedom to own a firearm. If you want to, you don't. The conservatives want to have the secure border and have no problem with people living and gated communities. Conservatives think that all people should have access to school choice because there is no paradox, there is no contradiction between being a conservative and living as one when there is the exact opposite because liberals can never live out their own philosophy. Bernie Sanders is a great example of this. Breadline Bernie Sanders, Bolshevik Bernie Sanders. He says he's this great socialist and he goes makes millions of dollars off of his book. If Bernie Sanders was such a great socialist, if Bernie Sanders was actually such a great Marxist, wouldn't he actually go live as one? Such as, why didn't he give his book away for free? To each according to his ability, to each according to his ability, each according to his need. Isn't that what is the Marxist doctrine? Isn't that what 
You should actually practice what you preach. You could have given the book away for free on the internet and asked for a voluntary contribution. But the left has no principle. They only want power. And at Turning Point USA, every single day, we are in the trenches of America's culture war, fighting for freedom, fighting for liberty, and fighting against the culturally intolerant left that wants to be the only viewpoint in America's political discussion and discourse. We're president of over 1,400 college and high school campuses across the country, bringing this fight to where it matters most. If you like what you've been hearing and you want to hear even more, you can go to Apple Podcasts, type in The Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe. You'll hear more about the news of the day, the America's culture war, the way we're processing what's happening, and even some big, bold predictions. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. You can visit our website, tpusa.com. That's tpusa.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Buck Sexton radio show, the great Buck Sexton. This is Charlie Kirk filling in, honored to be pinch hitting for the great Buck Sexton as he continues the great work he does for our amazing country. Uh, I am the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement present now on over 1,400 college and high school campuses across the country. We're fighting for free markets, for limited government, for the Constitution, where it matters most. Our saying is that we are going to win America's culture war. We believe that America is the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. We're the most benevolent, the most productive, the most entrepreneurial, the most forward-thinking country ever to exist, that the world is a better place because of a strong America. We believe that the Constitution is the greatest political document ever written, and we believe that free enterprise capitalism is the most moral, proven, and effective economic system ever discovered. And we bring this message to the front lines of high school and college campuses all across the country, where there are students that more times than not they don't necessarily come with well-prepared notes or rebuttals saying all these things are untrue. Instead, it's not that students are opposed to our ideas, it's that they're not exposed to them at all in the first place. One of my great memories of doing Turning Point USA, one of the great opportunities that I've had over the last couple of years, is being able to travel to these college, uh, these college campuses with a good friend of mine, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, Don Jr., as many of you know, um, is probably one of the best and most effective voices for the conservative movement. We were just at Penn State University a couple weeks ago speaking to a crowd of over 2,000 students, 2,000 students at Penn State University. And I have firsthand seen my friend Donald Trump Jr. get land blasted by the media time and time again, get targeted, get misrepresented, for taking a singular meeting, a singular meeting in June of 2016, and all of a sudden he's on the front page of Time Magazine. He was the number one trending topic on Twitter multiple times throughout the last year and a half. He voluntarily testified, voluntarily testified in front of Congress for over 20 hours about this singular meeting, about one meeting that Donald Trump Jr. took. One meeting that resulted in nothing, and yet he did over 20 hours of testimony in front of the House Intelligence Committee, which, of course, the testimony that he did 
was leaked immediately after he did it. Mueller investigated everything surrounding the Trump campaign, and the conclusion was very simple. No collusion, no obstruction. The left, isn't it amazing how disappointed the left was with this conclusion? Shouldn't the left have been excited and happy and thankful that a president did not collude with a foreign adversary? Shouldn't the left have said, you know what? This is a good day for all Americans. That two years and $30 million spent with a special investigator, which is a very, very rare thing, by the way, as a special prosecutor, very rare. We are now happy alongside our Republican counterparts to be able to say that there was no collusion and no obstruction. Instead, when the Mueller report came out, it seemed as if Republicans were relieved, and they should be, all Americans should be relieved, and yet Democrats were angry. It's as if the Democrats were, oh no, this this can't be right, obstruction, Uh, there there must be something we're missing here, we have to keep on investigating, we have to go after Trump's taxes now, we have to keep on investigating. What, What on earth are the Democrats going to find in Congress that Bob Mueller and two years investigations, $30 million as a roaming prosecutor wasn't able to find? And so this is why last week when I saw the news come down that the Senate Intelligence Committee chaired by Senator Burr from North Carolina out of nowhere, out of complete left field, subpoenas Donald Trump Jr. saying there's still questions that we need to have answered. He didn't request them. He didn't say, hey, Don, you know, would you mind answering questions in written format? Subpoenaed him, which if Don Jr. does not follow or honor this subpoena, he'd be in direct defiance of federal law. The firstborn son of the president of the United States, the most effective voice in the conservative movement, gets a subpoena after the Mueller report by a Republican, by a Republican senator who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee. Moments afterwards, I and many other conservatives went absolutely scorched earth against Senator Burr forcing comment from Senator Tom Tillis, who did the right thing and came out and said that this was ridiculous and ludicrous, forcing comment from Senator Mitch McConnell, who just the day before said the Russia case was case closed. Senator Mitch McConnell said, it's case closed. This is over. Then the day after, Senator Burr comes out and subpoenas Donald Trump Jr., comes out and subpoenas him, saying we still have questions left. This, there is one reason this happened, and nobody zeroed in. I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people zeroed in on it. Very few people. Senator Burr only did this because he wanted to appease Democrats. Do you notice how often Republicans do this? Do you notice how often conservatives go out of their way to get nice articles written about them in the Washington Post? How often conservatives go out of their way to make sure they get nice mentions on CNN or MSNBC? Mitt Romney did this. Mitt Romney specialized in this. Jeff Flake wrote the book on it recently in the modern Trump era. George W. Bush even did it through No Child Left Behind and Medicare Part D and not shrinking the size of government. It seems as if Republicans over the last 20, 30 years continuously and routinely do whatever they possibly can to make sure they're still invited to the cocktail parties and make sure they still get some nice articles written about them in the Washington Post. When will these conservatives realize you cannot fight for truth, you cannot do what is right while simultaneously appeasing the left? It is impossible. 
the left is at direct odds 99.9% of the time of what is best for this country. And so Senator Burr gets a call from his friend, Senator Warner, and, you know, they have a, they have a little meeting. I'm sure this happened. He says, well, you know, it'd be really great if we can get some more questions from Don Jr. after the Mueller report has been issued. If Mueller didn't find it, if the Department of Justice didn't find it, what are they going to find? They wanted nothing more than to be able to continue and elongate this taxpayer-funded attack against President Trump. So Donald Trump Jr., the firstborn son of the President of the United States, the most effective voice in the conservative movement, is now having to spend unbelievable amount of more money on legal fees. We're talking about millions of dollars to represent himself because one comma is wrong, one semicolon is wrong, one apostrophe is wrong in any statement. They say, oh, you lied to Congress, you could go to jail. Or you lied to the FBI. That's what happened to Michael Flynn. That's what happened to George Papadopoulos and many others. And yet this is all because of a Republican senator, Senator Burr, who just wants to be loved. He's not seeking re-election, so he's probably already thinking to himself, well, I might want to be a contributor at another cable news network, or I might want to have a weekly column with one of these papers. And they've been so mean to me lately. They, they accused me of all these things in the Mueller report that I was back-channeling information to the White House. What can I do to save face? If Donald Trump has taught us one thing, it is do what is right and don't care what the left says and don't care what the media says. And Senator Burr defied this exact rule. And it seems that Republicans time and time again, from Mitt Romney to George W. Bush to Jeff Flake and countless others, participated in this leftist, leftist appeasement politics. Leftist appeasement politics. Oh, I'm not, I'm not that into the tax cut thing. I'm only into it certain or oh you know uh, judges um like george w bush how about john roberts you know john roberts can be a consensus builder if you notice president trump time and time again has taught now the conservative base do what is right stand for truth and don't allow the left to dictate the terms of engagement and just because he wants to be loved and just because senator burr wants to keep on getting invited to the cocktail party because he's worried about what lobbying firm he's going to work for once he's done. Now, we have to continue this falsehood. How about this? I have a list. I have a list of people who should be subpoenaed. How about James Comey for lying under oath to Congress when he said that there, quote, was no spying and was no surveillance of the Trump campaign? How about Brennan? How about Clapper? How about Hillary Clinton? You know, this whole idea of obstruction of justice, I get such a kick out of this. Obstruction of justice, the president obstructed justice. Hillary Clinton smashed cell phones, bleach-bitted emails. Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, met with the sitting attorney general privately and secretly on a private plane in Phoenix, Arizona, just two days before she was acquitted of all wrongdoing into the Clinton email, quote-unquote, matter, to use James Comey's term. How about subpoenaing John Kerry for potential violations of the Logan Act? Wouldn't that be a good idea of a subpoena for the Senate Intelligence Committee? Is it the Senate Intelligence Committee actually supposed to find out about foreign adversaries potentially infiltrating our country or politicians? How about issuing a subpoena to former Vice President Joe Biden, who on a trip to on the second Air Force One, which is the vice president's plane to China was courting Chinese officials. And just hours after days after 
Bo, his son Hunter Biden, not Bo Biden, Hunter Biden, got an approval of billions of dollars to a fund from Chinese the Chinese government. Wouldn't that be something worthy of a subpoena or investigating? Oh, no, no. But instead, Republican Senator Burr uses his power to investigate my friend, friend of the conservative movement, friend of our country, Donald Trump Jr., for taking a singular meeting. They want to do nothing more than isolate and to bother the president of the United States continually on this lie. A taxpayer-funded attack against a duly elected president of the United States. And make no mistake, the left is not worried that the president will fail. They're worried that he's succeeding. Think about that. They're not worried that he's going to fail. They're worried that he's succeeding because a booming economy, peace abroad, renegotiated trade deals, strong justices on the court, that's actually what threatens them. It actually threatens them that we have the lowest ever black unemployment, lowest ever Asian American unemployment, lowest ever Latino unemployment. It threatens them greatly that a president is actually able to succeed around these ideas. That these ideas that have been long talk about, talked about in conservative circles are now proven to be correct. They should be celebrating the fact that the country is in a better place t- today than it ever has been. They should be celebrating the fact that the country is experiencing peace and prosperity and said they're horrified. The left is horrified. That's why they have to hold on to this conspiracy theory called the Russia investigation. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton, and we'll be right back. This was all a setup, I think, and we'll know more, and we'll know more here soon. Well, was it also a setup to set up Donald Trump Jr.? I mean, what is this subpoena of Donald Trump Jr. coming out of your colleagues and the Senate Intel Committee? As I understand it, this subpoena relates to what Michael Cohen said about some meetings and about the, uh, the Trump Tower in Russia. All I can say is that Richard Burr is a very good friend. He's trying hard to be bipartisan. But anything based on what Michael Cohen said is worthless testimony. Michael Cohen is a worthless witness. And if I were Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyer, I would tell him, you don't need to go back into this environment anymore You've been there for hours and hours and hours, and nothing being alleged here changes the outcome of the Mueller investigation. I would call it a day. Lindsey Graham 2.0. My goodness, where has Lindsey Graham been all my life? It seems that recently Lindsey Graham has just turned into this defender of truth and this courageous fighter for conservative principles. Now, understand, Senator Graham is, of course, in cycle. Senator Graham is up for re-election, so that might have something to do with it. But boy, I think something actually really happened. I have a working thesis with Senator Graham. I think Senator Graham best embodies the positive, the positives of the Trump presidency. Now understand, Senator Graham did everything he possibly could, could throughout the last couple of years to be bipartisan, to go to the right parties, to be on all the right committees and to work with Democrat senators and to work with Democrats on basically everything. He considered them friends. He considered them close confidants. And then something happened where he broke and he turned against the left and defended truth. And that, of course, was the hearings to confirm now Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And you'll never forget, I'll never forget, 
and I'm sure people listening to this will never forget, when he turned in that hearing and he said, first to Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh. Boy, if you came for a fair hearing, you came to the wrong town at the wrong place. And then he turns to the Democrats and you almost see Senator Graham metamorphosizing in front of your eyes from an establishment Republican to a principled conservative in your in front of your very eyes. And he says, I thought y'all were my friends. And at that very moment, he realized the left has revealed themselves to him, that they have been using him, that they are more radical than ever before. And Senator Graham, who is then a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he's now the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, went on one of the most scathing indictments of the American left, talking about how they misrepresented Judge Kavanaugh's character, how they did this for a circus is what he called it. And since that moment, Senator Graham has been a defender of this president and the injustice of the Mueller investigation. And finally, talking about the truth behind the investigation, how Peter struck stroke smirk, in the words of the great Rush Limbaugh, and his lover, Lisa Page, were colluding at the top levels of the FBI, where they, where they literally were texting about having a quote-unquote insurance policy against the president. Senator Graham has pointed out how Fusion GPS actually set up the meeting that Donald Trump Jr. participated in, in Trump Tower. It was a setup by a Democrat-funded opposition research firm. Senator Graham has talked about how he's now going to subpoena then-former FBI Director James Comey. Now Senator Graham is saying the correct and proper thing, giving the advice, the public advice, to Donald Trump Jr. to defy this subpoena. Until Hillary Clinton, until James Comey, and then, yes, until all the people in the circle, including President Obama himself, have to answer for the FISA surveillance, have to answer for what they knew about the funding of this fake dossier that led to the spying. It's not surveillance spying. It's spying. It wasn't disclosed. It was secretive. It was unethical. It was borderline illegal the way, the, the way, they, went about, the way they went about it. And Senator Lindsey Graham is one of the great success stories of this presidency because he went from someone who was a squishy establishment Republican now to a principled conservative fighting for truth. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. We'll be right back. If you wanted an FBI investigation, you could have come to us. What you want to do is destroy this guy's life, hold this seat open, and hope you win in 2020. You've said that, not me. You've got nothing to apologize for. When you see Sotomayor and Kagan, tell them that Lindsey said hello, because I voted for them. I would never do to them what you've done to this guy. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. And if you really wanted to know the truth, you sure as hell wouldn't have done what you've done to this guy. God, I hate to say it because these have been my friends. But let me tell you, when it comes to this, you're looking for a fair process. You came to the wrong town at the wrong time, my friend. And there it was, Senator Lindsey Graham standing for truth in defiance of the mob. And now you see him doing the exact same thing where he goes as far to say, and I totally agree with him, that the Fusion GPS meeting was a setup 
that Donald Trump Jr. took a Trump Tower. I should say that the Trump Tower meeting was a setup set up by Fusion GPS. And, you know, it's one of the rules that I have about politics is it is very easy to get away with corruption when narratives are confusing. Think about that. As the narratives get more and more convoluted, as the names get more and more blurred, you have Peter Strzok, you have Lisa Page, you have James Comey, you have Brennan, you have Clapper, you have Valerie Jarrett, you have FISA, you have all these different acronyms and numbers. People want to see Bruce Orr's 302s, which is, for those of you that don't know, a 302 is a write-up or a report that an FBI agent makes. You have Fusion GPS, which kind of sounds like an intergalactic space mission. Fusion GPS. I, I mean, when I first heard it, I thought it was some sort of a MapQuest device, when actually it's a opposition research firm that Hillary Clinton and the Democrat Party funded. So Hillary Clinton and the Democrat Party used this opposition research firm to create the now famous Steele dossier. And for those of you listening, you might already be confused by going through all this. Because who is, who's Christopher Steele and who is Peter Strzok and who is Lisa Page? So if you actually want to talk about true collusion, everyone says, oh, there's collusion. You want to talk about real collusion? There was collusion between the top levels of the FBI, the Clinton campaign and the Democrat National Committee, and Fusion GPS and the FISA court. So you had the top level of the FBI. I want you to understand, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page were in the top five members of the highest level of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. There are so many good people that work for the Bureau. As I always say, it's the suits, not the boots, that I'm always targeting my criticism at. There are so many phenomenal agents that are cracking down on narco-drug trafficking, that are cracking down on gang-related violence, that are cracking down on child sex practices and child sex trafficking, that are cracking down on foreign inter- actual foreign interference into our country. But it's the suits. It's Peter Strzok. It's Lisa Page who were at the top levels of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who were using their positions of influence, and they were texting about this in now-revealed text messages, where they said they, quote-unquote, had an insurance policy to make sure that the president did not become the president, that Trump did not become the president. They colluded through Bruce Orr, their co-worker at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, with Fusion GPS, you might say, well, how, how is that possible? Well, Bruce Orr's wife, Nellie Orr, worked at Fusion GPS, and she worked on this dossier. So what you had was a phony piece of intelligence. Most of the dossier has been totally and completely debunked, including even Michael Cohn's supposed visit to Prague, Czechoslovakia. Even Michael Cohn, the liar, can't be can actually be trusted for the fact that he's never been to Prague. So you had this fake dossier that was then used as a piece of intelligence in front of a FISA court. Now you might say, well, what's a FISA court? I hear all these things. A FISA court is essentially getting authorization to surveil or spy on or listen in on 
U.S. citizens. It is a national security court. It is the highest level of classification. We actually don't know who these judges are. The proceedings are almost always classified. So the Federal Bureau of Investigation used this piece of intelligence, used this dossier that was cooked up. But who funded the dossier? For millions of dollars. It took tons of alleged research and tons of is a work of fiction. So it took lots of writing and it took a lot of half-truths and bits and pieces of information put into a mosaic of lies. So the FBI used this dossier that was funded by Hillary Clinton, funded by the Democrat National Committee, and they took this piece of paper and they brought it to the FISA court judge to get a warrant to spy on the Trump campaign, to get a warrant to permission to listen in on conversations. And the question has to be, did the judge ask where the funding came from? Did the judge ask where this dossier originated from? Did he ask who was actually behind it? These questions remain to be answered. And so they brought this dossier to the judge. The judge approved surveillance and spying. And you remember, people laughed and they mocked and they mimicked President Trump. They said, oh, there's no way that he's actually being spied on. Because remember, President Trump came out and he said, they're spying on my campaign. They are spying on my campaign and people laughed and turned out he was true. It was right. Turned out he was right. Turned out it was true. And so it's so, one of the laws of politics that I have, I'll repeat it, is that corruption, it's so easy to get away with all this. When the media, first of all, refuses to report on anything from the middle to the right side of the aisle. And it also is easy to get away with it when it's so confusing, where it takes, and I have, I have pages of show prep here, pages of just, well, what's FISA and what's this and who's Bruce Orr and who's Nellie Orr and where did Clapper come in and Brennan and Comey and McCabe. It's easy because all these names start to blur into one. And yet it's easy to get away with it. But do you know what's so frustrating? This is much easier to report on. And this is much easier to talk about than the alleged Russian collusion that doesn't exist. What's easy to report on? The actual facts that we have here or the conspiracy theories and half-truths that don't even exist within the Trump campaign colluding with Russia? Well, we have some evidence that he wanted to build a tower. Okay, well, he built towers all over the world. That doesn't mean anything. And now you have all of this mountain of misinformation and falsehoods surrounding the president, people, 44% of the American people still think that the president colluded with the foreign power. Think about that. 44% of American people still believe that. 44% of the American people are not that misled. But 44% of the American people can be misled by a media that has become nothing more than a propaganda machine of the, Demo- of the Democrat Party. The media does not tell truth. It does not try to investigate both sides equally does not try to inform the citizenry of what is going on in the world. Instead, the media advances narratives that benefit the modern American left. Instead, the media does whatever they possibly can to propagandize the public towards hating Donald Trump. And so you now have Senator Lindsey Graham, who's part of a growing group of Republicans that have taken a page from our great president, which is stand and fight and punch back twice as hard. 
And for him to call it a setup on national TV, good for you, Senator Lindsey Graham, because that's not easy. You are going to get disinvited from cocktail parties. You are now going to go on what Alan Dershowitz calls the Trump diet. Now, for those of you listening to this, if you would like to call the Trump diet, try the Trump diet. It's, It's taking a definitive and unapologetic stand behind the president, and you will no longer be invited to country club dinners or cocktail parties by your liberal friends. You will lose guaranteed within 8 to 10 pounds this summer season. And I wish I was kidding. You know how many parties I'm not invited to anymore? You know how many friends that I've lost? You know how many, and Alan Dershowitz jokes, he goes to Martha's Vineyard and he doesn't get those party invites anymore. He just goes to bed at 8 and doesn't have to eat all those nicely put together desserts and catered dinners and wine lunches. See, a lot of the Republicans, and this goes back to my point about Senator Burr, a lot of Republicans just want to be loved. They want to be loved by the very same power complex that is from the Ivy League schools to the Acela Expressway. The Acela Expressway, of course, is the train that runs from New York to D.C. It's that power complex that has held a monopolization over both political parties, and Donald Trump has broken all that apart. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if he gets invited to parties. In fact, he gets invited to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He goes and does a rally in Wisconsin. God bless him for doing that because he doesn't, he doesn't care. Instead, what he cares is for delivering results to the American people. He doesn't need their money. He doesn't need their prestige. He doesn't need the credibility. Instead, he just cares about one thing. Is our country in a better place today than it was the day, the day before I got inaugurated? And the answer is unequivocally yes. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton, founder of Turning Point USA. Check us out at tpusa.com, and we'll be right back. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton radio show. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton, my friend, friend of freedom, friend of liberty. He's a great American patriot. It's an honor to be filling in for him. I'm the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA. I've been talking a lot about this Donald Trump Jr. injustice this last hour, talking about how incredible it is that the firstborn son of the president of the United States takes a singular meeting that was set up by the opposition political party via Fusion GPS, and now he's had to spend millions of dollars in legal fees. He's had his name tarnished, and he's had this entire narrative painted around him. He is one of the greatest people I've had the opportunity to get to know. He's an incredible person, and now he's just been absolutely flung through the mud because of this, but we have not done it without a fight. We're going to punch back twice as hard against the people in both political parties that continually try to demagogue everything that he's doing. Actually, a couple weeks ago, I had Donald Trump Jr. on my podcast. And if you've liked a little bit what I've talked about, please go to Apple Podcasts, type in Charlie Kirk Show, and press that subscribe button. Maybe press five stars if you really like what you had to hear. That really helps us out at the Charlie Kirk Show and what we're doing at Turning Point USA. You go to Apple Podcasts, type in the Charlie Kirk Show, really appreciate it. And really, my day is not always hosting radio, not always doing this, but instead is going to the front lines of where the battle matters most, to our college and high school campuses fighting for free markets, fighting for limited government, and fighting for the Constitution. And I find more times than not, students are searching for another opinion. They're searching for the conservative perspective. Because far too often, our ideas our viewpoints, our arguments get demeaned and demagogued by the other side. And we allow them to misrepresent us, get called all these horrendous and hideous names. 
And for far too long, we've taken it. We've taken it without actually pushing back. And this is something that the president has instructed us so well, is that if someone's going to try to define you, don't let that happen. And on college campuses, the amount of vitriol, the amount of venom, the amount of backlash that our students receive is unconscionable for simply saying that America is the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. For simply saying that we as a nation state should have our borders the way we see fit. For simply saying that we want more legal immigration and less border jumping and line cutting. Somehow these things are demagogued as quote-unquote hate speech. And yet we find so often that students in the middle and even some students on the left are thirsting and are hungry and are curious for the other side. And that's the work that we're doing at Turning Point USA every single day. Website tpusa.com. And I just take such personal exception to what they're doing here to Donald Trump Jr. and the entire Trump family. Can we just talk for a second about the great work that Jared Kushner has done through prison reform, through new trade deals, through securing the Olympics, through securing FIFA, which got basically no coverage. Ivanka Trump, the childhood tax credit, apprenticeship training. Eric Trump continually running the business super, super well. And yet, time and time again, the first family gets attacked for doing nothing except trying to advance the best interests of our country. Could you imagine for a second if Republicans dared subpoena Chelsea Clinton to ask her what she knew about the Clinton Crime Foundation, I mean the Clinton Family Foundation's work with foreign adversaries, for asking Chelsea Clinton, uh, excuse me, uh, Ms. Clinton, what did your mother say when she came back from Russia? Better yet, what did your father say when he came back from Russia and he spoke for 20 minutes and got $500,000 and your mother approved transfer of 20% of our country's uranium? What did she say about that? Could you imagine that would never happen. That would never happen because the Democrats refuse to do something to appease Republicans. And yet time and time again, we find Republicans go out of their way. We find conservatives that go out of their way just because they want to be loved. And if you just want to be loved by the left, it is impossible to do what is right. If you want to be loved by radicals that don't believe we live in the greatest country ever to exist, if you want to be loved by radicals, that, that don't believe that the Constitution is the greatest political document ever written, that don't believe that free enterprise is the solution to many of our problems, then you are going to continually be falling back into this negative feedback loop that will seed liberty and seed freedom and make America a less prosperous and much weaker country. I hope that more and more Republicans will take the tone of Senator Lindsey Graham and stand and fight, fight for what is right, fight for the Constitution, fight for due process, and fight for our country. It's been such a great pleasure filling in for my friend Buck Sexton. I'm going to be back later this week uh, continuing the fun. Um, For those of you that are interested in learning more about our organization, you can visit tpusa.com or you can go to Apple Podcasts and download the Charlie Kirk Show. Again, this is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. We'll see you guys later this week.